hi, I'm Shelley Wood, the managing editor for Heartwire, and my guest here tonight is Dr. Bruce Wilkoff from the Cleveland Clinic. We've been here at the AHA 2009 meeting, and there's been a couple important EP developments that we're going to discuss, several trials that are going to be important in the years to come, as well as some looking back at things we may have done in the past that we may not want to do in the future. I think we'll start with the PACE trial. This um, was important in a number of ways, but I think I'll leave it to the expert to describe uh, what was important about it. Can you just start by giving us a bit of a walkthrough as to what this trial was all about? Glad to, Shelley. So the PACE trial uh, was unique in that it was a randomized clinical trial that came from Asia, and it was uh, coordinated out of, out of Hong Kong by CMU, and they took patients with pacemaker indications, and they randomized those patients both with AV block or sinus node dysfunction uh, to either receive traditional dual chamber pacing or biventricular stimulation. And uh, they were looking at echo endpoints. They were looking at ejection fraction. They were looking at systolic volume. Um, and they also looked at whether they had heart failure events. And it's, it's an interesting trial because um, only about half the patients really needed any ventricular stimulation at all, and they started right. off with normal ventricles. So it's a little bit controversial because these patients, particularly with the sinus node dysfunction, um, were paced, but they had really no indication for pacing. Now, can you just give me a bit of context for this, though? What was the uh, rationale for even doing this trial in the first place? Well, it harkens back to a trial that I did, which was the David That's trial. Right. And the David trial was a trial done in defibrillator patients, patients with ventricular dysfunction, they had ejection fractions of 40% or less. And the concept then was that maybe we could improve their outcomes by pacing them dual chamber. But it turned out it hurt them. And matter of fact, substantially, there was about a 10% increase in the rate of heart failure hospitalization and mortality uh, at one year uh, when we dual chamber paced them. So we know that it's not a good thing to do to pace people at least with ventricular dysfunction. Right. Now, Subsequent to that, we've learned how to do biventricular pacing, and the question is, well, maybe we should be doing biventricular pacing maybe in everybody. And um, with the made it CRT trial coming out earlier this year, uh, taking even people without symptoms but ventricular dysfunction, yeah. that was seemed to help as well. But this trial took patients without ventricular dysfunction, just pacemaker indications. Some had AV block, so they needed pacing, and maybe that was a good idea to do biventricular pacing on those patients. But the patients that had sinus node dysfunction, they measured how long it would take for the intrinsic rhythm to get mm -hmm. there, and then they shortened the programmed AV delay, so they forced ventricular pacing. Yeah. And that's controversial because there's plenty of data, like the David data, and other data, actually, that suggests that uh, you don't want to be right ventricular pacing people. Right. Um, but... Uh, the results uh, showed that, uh, not too surprisingly, yeah. that the, the ventricles did deteriorate. Now, they didn't deteriorate that much. It was about 7%, but it went from normal to normal. To normal. And their ventricular volumes increased, so that's not too happy either. On the other hand, uh, there was no more heart failure in either group and such. Um, it's an interesting trial. It's, it's, it, I don't think it teaches us a great deal that we didn't know. But perhaps confirms that the strategies that are widely adopted now are the appropriate ones. Is that a fair right. statement? Right. I certainly 
I don't think this tells us that we should be biventricularly pacing these patients. Right. It just means that we shouldn't be right ventricularly pacing these patients, which I think we knew before. Okay. And there was some discussion around this trial as to whether it would have taken place in North America or if, you know, starting in 2009 or 2010, you'd be able to do such a trial. What are your views on that? Well, in the United States, I don't think it could have. But um, according to the authors, this was the standard of care in, in uh, Hong Kong. Okay. And so maybe it will change their standard of care right. in Hong Kong. And we have to look beyond North America that's sometimes, right, don't exactly. we? That's and, right, and, exactly. And there is a diversity of care uh, around the world. And what seems obvious to one group of people may not be as obvious to others. So, and sort of not invented here is also an important issue. I mean, it has to be in our yep. kind of patients, our maybe maybe the Chinese are different than North Americans. I mean, right. that's the perception perception at least, but right. but It was a possibility, but it didn't seem to turn out that way. I don't think so, <laughs> yeah. no. Let's turn now to the replace uh, registry results that we saw at this meeting. We actually saw replace results at the HRS meeting earlier this year, and this was a, a sort of expanded population with a couple differences. That's Can you correct. just walk me through what sure. new information came out here so at AHA? The replace trial was, is very important. It's a very basic trial. They, they, they took patients that needed to have their devices replaced. Um, and at HRS, there were a thousand patients that uh, had their devices replaced, but there was no plan to change any of the leads at the time of the replacement. So we got the initial results. Now, at this meeting, we got an additional 750 patients yeah. where there was a plan to change a lead at the same time. And so we have an expanded result. Now, we kind of knew that, um, we were kind of shocked at the original uh, reports where it showed that the rate of complications was actually substantial. Yeah. Uh, and a matter of fact, complications, I believe it was 11% in the... Uh, At the HRS? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And when you added in the planned lead revisions, um, it went up to over 15%. Which is the new information from, from what we saw at AHA Exactly. Here. And if that new lead included a left ventricular lead, it went over 18%. So uh, this is a pretty high... Those are shocking numbers. Yeah, I think it is. People it, in your field, will they be surprised by these numbers? Or is there any awareness that those type of figures might be out there? You know, I think what happens is we see these complications and we don't necessarily, or observations, you, yeah. I mean, some people might call them observations, some people call them complications, but you see them, but maybe you don't understand the magnitude of what's going on. So I think it's a reality check, and I think it's really important. Uh, the first commitment, and when you're doing any procedure, has to be to quality. But if you're going right. to be interested in quality, you have to also measure your outcomes. And so this shows that we need to be measuring our outcomes and not just one place measuring it for everybody, but every institution has to be measuring their outcomes. Because if these rates are true in some locations, Across the board, yeah. right, there are certainly opportunities to make this better. And you're saying that in, at individual institutions they're not necessarily measuring this at, on a day-to-day -day basis or not well, day to day, but? I think, they're, I think that's true, yes, okay. I, I do. Uh, uh, so first of all, um, people may not be interested in, in reporting on their own uh, yeah. uh, problems, but, but the f if your first commitment is to quality, then knowing your outcomes is really your friend. Sure, you shouldn't and be afraid if you shouldn't you're be afraid. Yeah. Okay. And, and if everybody's doing this, if this is the reality, then we can do better. And there are data suggesting that you can do better. So um, what is the potential for those numbers to come down? What is the number at which it's a sort of an acceptable rate of complications that is unavoidable? 
Well, I, I'm not sure we know that for certain, but I do know uh, we did a trial that we presented at, uh, at the Heart Rhythm meeting mm -hmm. uh, just last uh, May and will be coming out in, in January. It's called the Lexicon trial. And this was another step further. We were doing replacements and we were doing lead revisions. We were right. actually doing lead extractions. Okay. And the major complication rate during that trial was only 0.3%. Okay. And um, now that was procedural complication rate, mm -hmm. um, but then there were other complications. If you were infected, you had a pocket infection, the, uh, your hospital mortality was 1.7%, but if you had vegetations, it went up to 4.3%. So it depends on how sick your population yes. is too. But the, the key is we have to start measuring this. Every lab has to start measuring their outcomes, and then we have an opportunity to make it better. Yeah, okay. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, looking forward, going into 2010 um, and beyond. Let's, let's look into the future a bit. What are some of the um, things you see on the horizon in your field that uh, you're excited about? Well, one of the things I actually got to speak about at this meeting was about remote monitoring and where the future is. And it's an exciting field. Uh, it's, it's as a really journalist, we get press releases on it all the time. Do you? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that because I think it's really exciting. Up until this point in time, we've sort of concentrated on the technology. Wow, isn't it great? Yeah. But there's a, it's, a, it's a powerful tool. And right now we're, we're looking at patient by patient by patient, but it's possible to look across patients. It's possible to look at whole populations, and it's possible to hook up mm -hmm. those whole populations to outcomes like mortality, like uh, the Medicare uh, hospitalization uh, database, right. and you get those outcomes. or uh, if you're also interrogating these devices remotely, their shock rates, how much atrial fibrillation they're having, what the rates are, whether okay. they get hospitalized later on. The point is, if you look across populations, and we started this at the heart rhythm meeting, the altitude study looked at 86,000 patients and looked at okay. the uh, mortality rates um, and the shock rates in those populations. The exciting thing about this is this really a new way of doing outcomes trials. Yeah. Um, when you do most clinical trials, you have to transcribe information. There's compliance problems. When you have a remote monitoring system that actually takes the information, sort of sucks it out of the patient while they're yeah. sleeping, there is not a compliance problem. As long sure. as it's plugged into the wall, if the, it's like an answering machine sitting next to your bed. While you're sleeping, the information comes out. So you get outcomes you will, and it's going to be accurate. It's not but like these are. This isn't just a research tool. This is also patient management. This right? is patient management. Yeah. And so, uh, it's a, a new paradigm, and I think you're going to see. I'm excited about the upcoming heart rhythm meeting because we're going to be uh, seeing some results that says, well, if you have atrial fibrillation, uh, how f if it goes at 90 beats per minute, um, does that translate to increased mortality? Hmm. If it goes to 110 beats per minute more. Um, does it mean that you get more shocks? Th and you just can't capture that type of information, or we haven't in the past. It's, I guess, at the level of the micro and the macro somehow. Well, and, and, and the big thing is, I mean, Medicare has always been worried about whether our clinical trials are really reflective of the real world. Yeah. And so... In this, this is the real world. This is the real world. Mm -hmm. And when, when we looked at the altitude data at the heart rhythm meeting, it actually turned out that our results were even better than the clinical trials. So Medicare is getting more bang for its buck than it knew. Yeah. And, and that's really exciting, and we need to know that. Plus, 
uh, all sorts of things like there are not enough women usually uh, enrolled in clinical, in clinical trials. trials, but this is all the women. They're getting, they're there as well. Okay. So if you're going to look at the women or minorities or other things that you don't pick up well in clinical trials, this is a much better way. And I think it's really exciting. You know, we've, we've been discussing that maybe uh, clinical trials are more and more difficult to do. This is right? actually sounding a bit easier. This <laughs> is a little bit easier and uh, it's it probably less expensive mm -hmm. um, and maybe better. You know, the purpose of doing a randomized clinical trial is to minimize bias. Uh, the reason you do that is because you have a small population. You right. want to make sure you have it's the same on both sides. But if you include everybody, there is no bias. Mm -hmm. you, you've got, you've eliminated bias. You have a larger population. You can study it. It's more accurate. I think this is a very exciting trend. Okay. And uh, so we have a chance actually to lead in this quality measure. And I think it's going to uh, prove that we can actually get some more benefit out of our defibrillators and other, we can monitor drugs. I mean, I mean, the possibilities are endless. They I would really assume. are. Yeah. They are. Well, it's lovely to talk to someone who's so excited about uh, their field and the future of it. Well, thank you very much.